Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast, and in particular to episode two of our investigation into the remarkable story of the wreck of the Andrea Doria. Today we hear from two more eyewitnesses of the events, Linda Hardberger and Mike Stoller. One of the great joys of studying this wreck is that we don't have to rely on actors reading out aged handwritten accounts of the wreck. We can actually talk to people who were on board, and you can't get closer to history than that. Linda is now 80 and lives in San Antonio in Texas. She's been a teacher, a librarian, a museum curator, and she is a mother. And she has been boating for 40 years. Mike Stoller, you will probably have heard of. If not, then you most certainly will have heard of some of the things that Mike has created. He is the Mike Stoller from the songwriting team Lieber and Stoller. And they wrote Hound Dog, Jailhouse Rock and Stand By Me. And to put all of this into some sort of chronological context to help you with the wreck, Hound Dog was first released in February 1953. That's five months before the wreck of the Andrea Doria. And Jailhouse Rock was released in September 1957, so just one year after the wreck of the Andrea Doria. And I'll just add here for my own chronology that at the time I was minus 20. So, to take you on to the rocking 1950s, but to a cold, misty and frightening morning in the rocking 1950s, here are the excellent Linda and Mike. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to them as much as I enjoyed talking with them. Linda, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Sam, it's a pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, Tell me, how do, you, how do you kind of file your memories of such an extraordinary event? Uh, how old were you when you were on board? I was 14 years old. I just had a birthday. Wow. And uh, what was your reasoning for, for travelling travelling on the ship? My parents were living in, well, we were all living in Spain. 
my, my stepfather worked for the New York Times and he was having home leave, which you get every four years. We were living in Madrid. And uh, my sister and my mother and I were all going with him. I was in the process of starting high school, a boarding school in Pennsylvania. So I was going to stay. And my, my, my mother, my stepsister, and my stepfather were all going to go back to Madrid after uh, they'd spent the three months in the United States. Right. So how many of you were there in, in the party that were traveling back? There were four of us. And um, did, did you all survive? No. My mother, my, excuse me, my stepsister and my stepfather were both killed. And my mother and I survived. My mother had a lot of problems for the rest of her life. And in fact, um, died on the anniversary of the Andradoria in, oh gosh, I've, I've forgotten, but it was about six or eight years. Oh, no, I know. It was 1968 because it was the year we got ma- my husband and I got married. What, a, what an extraordinary coincidence. Um, so take me back to the, your, your memories. I suppose as being a 14-year-old girl, you, 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 you perhaps have good memories of this? Oh, it was a great, you know, it was a great trip. We, uh, we got on at, at uh, Gibraltar, and basically it had very lovely weather until we got just uh, east of Nantucket. And then it, that, that last day, um, everything, the evening actually, everything fogged in. And we were actually supposed to have the captain come for dinner. And we were told that the captain wasn't going to come down for dinner because of the weather was so bad. He was going to stay up on the bridge. And so we, we had dinner and then my sister and I went to bed and um, shortly thereafter and went, I believe, I'm not too sure, but they were having, at the end of, the, of, a, of a voyage, you usually have some kind of a party. And I'm pretty sure that they were there. But um, they went to bed fairly early because we were going to be going, getting into New York quite early. So they, they were also in bed and we had adjoining cabins. My mother and I were on the outside of the, of the ship and my stepfather and sister were on the inside. And when I guess the Stockholm came through our cabin, um, because we were on the outside, we made it and my sister and, and my father did not. Do you remember what the, uh, your sort of first impressions of what the ship was like when you got on board? Yes. Um, it wasn't the first time I'd ever been on uh, a ship because that, in those days, that's really how you traveled a lot. The flying was not quite as fancy as it is now. And it took several legs before you got to where you were going. So a ship was kind of part of a holiday. It took you a week to get from, at least from, from, for us. But the Andradoria was pretty fancy. It was one of their top of the line uh, ships. And it was also kind of wonderful because it was full of kids. And they had a special uh, playroom for, my sister was seven years younger than I was. So she was only seven. And uh, so it had a swimming pool. And um although it was kind of chilly, but anyway, it was, yeah, it was very fancy, very lovely. We had movies every afternoon and 
that was we, I've never done that before. <laughs> so it was no. it was fun. Real luxury. Um, uh, what what class were you traveling? We were traveling first class. Ah. You saw that saw the nicest bits of it. I hear I hear that the ship was a floating art gallery. Do you remember of it? Do you remember it being like that? You know, I became an art historian um, in in my later years, but I honestly was not particularly interested in art at fourteen. My parents had dragged me to the Prado for every Sunday afternoon, and at this point, I was really happy to just have just to play. <laughs> very good no more art you were all done yeah, I mean, yeah, you, I was yeah. Done. <laughs> so um um well the, the terrible night you say that the the stockholm came through your cabin were you in exactly the the, the line of where it struck exactly wow and everybody below us did not make it i mean we were right at the level our cabin was right at the level of the bow of the soccer and so everything else and the Stockholm was an icebreaker because it would go north and so it was it was the bow their bow was reinforced so it was a pretty tough you know pretty tough bow and when it came in it just kind of sliced it sliced us mm-hmm. and what are your memories of, of the, the the moment of collision have no memories of the moment of collision. Um, I have, although I, I do remember a very loud noise and a, a and a big bump. I mean, there was a huge sort of bump, and and then the next thing I know, I'm outdoors on my mattress in my pajamas, but I'm looking at sky, and I have no idea where I am. I mean, I, I thought. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I was on the Andradoria. But um, I wasn't, and I tried to get up, and I realized that I had several broken bones and wasn't going to be able to move. So I started calling for my mother in Spanish, which is sort of an interesting sidelight because my first language is Spanish. I was born in Mexico. And apparently when you're in a, part, in a sense of stress, in an area of stress, you revert to your mother tongue. And coincidentally i mean this is all in, written in books but coincidentally um there was a, a, a sailor on the stockholm the only sailor on the stockholm that was a spaniard and he was intrigued by the fact that he was hearing somebody calling in spanish because i was from the bow because i was in an area on the boat that is not normally the the passengers are not normally allowed it's a it was a working Area. It's where the, the anchors are and all the chain and all that all that machinery. So there's usually no passengers on that part. So he was curious. So he came out and uh, found me and picked me up. And I kept hearing another woman yelling. And, and I thought that was my mother, but it apparently was not. And so he brought me into the cabin. Is inside. There was a, a steward there i think that's what you call him and he was looking over the manifest he asked me my name and he looked over the manifest and didn't find my name on there and at that point i was going by my stepfather's name so i tried my father's name and that didn't work and so he asked me and i said so where am i, I mean isn't this the andradoria and he looked rather puzzled and quite shocked 
And I, he said, no, this is a Stockholm. And that was sort of, then they took me down to the infirmary and um, that was, then it took two days to get back to New York. Gosh, how extraordinary. Um, and did you um, have difficulties, you know, processing this event in the, you know, the subsequent years? No doubt you did. I had an enormous time dealing with it. Um, in fact, I went to see a movie called Black Stallion, and there's a the, the opening scene is a, a a torpedo hitting a boat. And before I knew it, I was in the front lobby of the of the movie house. I I I cannot. I've never seen Dust Boat. I've never seen Titanic. I've never seen any of those movies. And and a, a huge for some reason. I mean, I guess it makes sense, but for some reason, an enormous rush of water gives me some pause. It, it makes me nervous. And then the other part was sort of the, you know, what is it that that identifies you? And I, I noticed the other day there was a story about the woman that was that was burned with napalm in Vietnam, and she said, "I'm I'm not the napalm girl," and anymore. And there was sort of, luckily by now, I mean, I'm 80 years old, so <laughs> I'm about to be 80. So it, it, it's kind of worn off and a lot of people don't know, don't know about it and so forth. So I've basically gone along and been used my maiden name. I didn't use my married name for a long time. People would call it not for a long time, but when there was an anniversary or, you know, the first anniversary, the 10th, whatever, I'd get calls, but after a while, it kind of slowed down, and um, it became not my major identity. And so I, I was able to get past it. Mm. I mean, you sound you're, you're very uh, fluent and very lucid talking about it. Is it still difficult to talk about? Yes, this is actually the first time I've really talked about it in a long time. It's a couple of times. Um, oh, a, an, a couple of authors, and then the National Geographic did a piece. But actually, with the National Geographic, I had somebody else read their book. I, I didn't. I didn't talk. Mm. Well, uh, we're very grateful for your time and uh, your emotional input on this. Um, in the aftermath of it, were you interested in um, uh, who was who was going to be apportioned blame for the event? I suppose you were you were a teenage girl, and it was easy for you to to kind of not think about it and carry on your life. Did you have any kind of um, you know uh, investment in how the investigations went? No, not at all. Uh, my husband ended up having a lot more much later because, as reading the books, he was he's a he's a trial lawyer um, and he's a litigator, so he was quite interested in how the whole insurance thing went down and so forth. It was a very different thing than it would be now. But um, no, I wasn't particularly. I, the only other thing that ever happened was the, the man that saved me, my dad, got in touch with him and he stayed in touch with him for a while. And, and you know, then he started asking for money and he was starting a coffee shop in Canada and so forth and so on. And, but after a while, I, I kind of lost track of it too. So I didn't, I, you know, Pierrette is so nice. She always asks, you know, if we want to go to a reunion. And my theory about that is, what do I have to talk about at a reunion? I mean, I, 
I, I don't really want to revisit the whole thing. And I'm sure that all these survivors are very happy about it, but I kind of want to go, you know, beyond it. Yeah. And, and, and try, try and move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think it's important for other people to learn about what happened? Uh, not really. Um, I, I, the only thing that I think is of some use is if people who are in this kind of a situation can talk about survivor's guilt. There's no doubt at all that I had survivor's guilt. And, um, and I think, you know, all the tragedies that we've had here in Texas with people, you know, with a sure that killed, you know, 19 people and so forth, all the people that didn't get killed are going to have a lot of trouble living with why they're still here. And that, that was an issue that I, I did struggle with when I was little. Um, I, you know, but other than that, I don't, I mean, I think it's historically interesting, I guess. I, it doesn't really much, do much for me, but um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's any kind of a learning lesson or anything like that. Yeah. Have you um, ever been back on a passenger liner? Yes, my father decided, this is my real father, decided that um, it was kind of like being on a horse and you had to get back on it. And so for my graduation from high school, which was four years later, I went over on, went to Europe on the Queen Elizabeth, the QE2. Do you have any memories of that crossing? Yes, I do, because there were several sort of ironic issues. Um, one of them was that I was asked to be the person that demonstrated how to put on a life jacket, which was a scream, because obviously I never put on a life jacket, so I had no idea how to put on one. Uh, the other thing was that half of the ship, I mean, most of the sailors on the Andrew Doria, because they knew what to do and where to go, were the ones that saved themselves first. In fact, the, the man that saved my mother was one of the last people off the boat, off the ship. And then the other one was that I got um, a, an invitation to meet with the captain around lunchtime right after we had left. It wasn't, you know, we got on about nine o'clock and about noon they wanted me to come up to lunch. And I had a roommate at the time. And my roommate was actually Mary Martin's daughter. So I thought, because she was my roommate in high school. So I thought that that's why we were being invited to, to have tea or whatever the heck it was. And, or, and so we went and when I, when we got there, they were very nice. We had a nice tea. And at the end of it, he said, okay, all this, he, some guy came in and some steward came in and said, okay, it's all clear. And I thought, well, that's odd. And it turns out that they had made a giant announcement that they were they were going over the Andradoria at that time. And so they didn't want me to hear the announcement, but of course they ended up telling me about it anyway. Wow. That is extraordinary, isn't it? So I wonder <laughs> who 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 told them that you were a survivor of the Andradoria in the first place? Was that your was that your dad? Yeah, I'm pretty sure my father did. Yeah. Uh Handled in an interesting way. I'm, I'm not sure getting you to put the life jacket on was the, <laughs> the most clearly thought through plan. I was, 
That was totally ridiculous. I mean, <laughs> I had no idea how to put one on. No. I was going to say, I'll ask if you ever you've been to any of the um, uh, sort of exhibitions um, around the Andrea Doria, or, or you know, seen any of the artifacts that have been raised or taken any interest? No, I, I have not. Um, I know that there's um, there's a maritime disaster museum. I'm not sure that's what they call it on 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 Nantucket. I think it's either Nantucket or Martha's Vineyard. I don't which and i've been invited to come very nicely um but no i haven't seen any of any of that oh i you know the other thing that, that kind of irritated me was um if you look me up there's a link on google there's a link to another guy who i think at this point is deceased but he says on there that he asked me if I wanted the key to my cabin. So I don't know what, how he found it, how he got it. But anyway, he had the key to my cabin and I had refused it. And the truth is he never asked me if I wanted the key to the cabin. I wouldn't have wanted it, but um, necessarily, but um, I did, I just never did it, which made me realize how much sort of misinformation is on Google. That's interesting. So, what the key to your cabin when you were on the Andrea Doria, and it was a it was a story linked to linked back right. to yeah. right. It was a number. It was the number, our cabin number. Hmm. Well, I wonder where that story came from, and who who would who would benefit from from a, just a, a wrong story like that? Maybe it was a mistake. Well, it was on his website. I mean, if you go if you go to Andrea Doria, or if you go to my 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 Google entry, which of course I didn't have anything to do with. Um, there's a link to this guy uh, and he collects, I guess he collects Andrea memorabilia. That's another thing I don't really understand, but um, I mean, I guess it's interesting. Uh, anyway, he, he does. And in there he states, and it makes it makes me sound rather nasty, you know, rude that I, he had very kindly offered to give me the key and I had, summarily turned them down. That's not exactly what it said, but I found it rather rude. Anyway, I think he's deceased now, and I don't know if his website still is. Yeah, but difficult to, to find you being presented as something that you're not. Yeah, and the other thing that's really, oh, there were a couple of things, a couple of sort of that were kind of funny. Geraldo Rivera, who is this really crazy uh well, I don't know. He's a, he's really kind of a charlatan, but he considers himself a reporter. Went through this whole thing for weeks about how they were going to bring up the, um, the safe from the Andrea and they were going to open it up on TV, on live TV. And I kept telling my husband, there's nothing in there because we all were asked to take all our stuff out. And so I said, there's nothing there. And so, but he, oh, he went on and said there was a bunch of bullion and that there was, uh, Cary Grant, wife, had a bunch of jewelry that she was bringing home. She was on the boat too. She was on the ship too. And we'd all, we'd all the night before taken all our stuff out. And so, opened it up, of course, there was nothing there after he'd done all this, but I, I was, I kind of snuck a view. My husband watched the whole show, but I thought that was pretty funny. Um, the other thing that I really do get upset about is this whole concept of bringing the boat, bringing the ship up. 
to me, that is a that's a cemetery, that's a burial ground, and it needs to be left alone. And I just assume I, I'm. It's very difficult to get down there, and I know that a lot of people have died trying. And I wish they'd kind of quit and just leave it alone. Yeah. Well, I think that's a very good place to end our story. Uh, Linda, thank you very much indeed for talking with me today. You're very welcome. Where are you, Mike? Are you in L.A. somewhere? Yes, I'm in my home in L.A. And where are you? I'm in Cornwall, in uh, the south, ah. the, the, the most beautiful part of England in the southwest. Oh, yeah, I've been there. And um, today the sun is shining just like it is in, uh, probably in L.A. Is Torquay in Tor- Cornwall? Torquay is in Devon. It's the county Devon. next door, but that's, that's very close to where I actually live. Um, it's known um, rather optimistically, Mike, as the English Riviera. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, uh, thank you so much for talking with me today. Um, it, it, I'm very excited and, um, and also uh, feel very privileged as well. You've written some, oh, some of the music which I've grown up with. Um, let's talk about the Andrea Doria. Yes. Uh, how old were you when you were on board? Um, I was 23. Wow. And how old are you now, Mike? Oh, uh, well... <laughs> I like to say, on my next birthday, on my next birthday, I'll be 90. Wow. Wow. Uh, uh, so long ago. But um, I suspect that your experiences when you were 23 were so profound, you haven't forgotten them. Uh, not all of them, no. <laughs> I may have forgotten some of my interviews about them, but... <laughs> <laughs> sure. Well, um, take us through your... I mean, what was happening in your life age 23? Well, uh, I got married for the first time at 22. And um, a year after uh, I got married, um, I got a check for a a recording uh, and a song um, called black denim trousers and motorcycle boots mm-hmm. and it was the biggest check I think I ever got you know it was five thousand dollars I'd never seen that much money at one time and I always wanted to go to Europe and I had never never had the opportunity so I went with my first wife we flew from LA to Copenhagen with a couple of stops on the way, a 25-hour trip, and uh, spent three months or or more than three months in Europe traveling all about and, of course, ending up in Italy. And for our trip home uh, on a ship, originally I had been booked on a Greek ship and I went to the auto club here in California uh, to buy coupons for gasoline. And uh, they said, oh, you know, we can get you on a wonderful ship that's better than that Greek ship. It's called the Andrea Doria. It's a new ship. 
so I went back to the fellow who had booked us on the, the Olympia, I think it was, the Greek ship. And he said, oh, yeah, if you can get on the Andrea Doria, take it. You'll never forget it. <laughs> and of got course, that right. <laughs> he got it right. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Right. <laughs> um I've heard that the ship was a, a a floating art palace. I mean that's something the Italians seem to be very proud of. Is that how you remember it? Well, it was quite beautiful, and of course, I uh, was not in first class where they had uh, perhaps the better art, uh, but it was very beautifully done, a beautiful ship, and uh, God, it was terrific. Yeah. I was wondering about whether there would have been entertainment on board. Were, were there, there are often Steinway pianos in the 1950s on cruise ships. Do you remember there being any music? Uh, I don't specifically remember any. I remember recorded music. But oddly enough, while I was driving uh, and then... Uh, moving about first, we went to different uh, cities. Uh, and when we got to Paris, we went to uh, L'Olympia, the, the music hall, or the Votre Music Hall. Uh, and Edith Piaf was performing there, and she did the French translation called L'Homme à la Moto, which was black denim trousers and motorcycle boots in French. And it was quite a thrill. I bet it was. I bet it was. Uh, I, I mean, having Edith sing, sing one of your songs in translation. So um, let's get back to this, this vessel. Were you traveling uh, with your wife? Was there anyone else yes. in your party? It was just the two of you, was it? Right. Um, we were in cabin class. And um, the room that we were in, the cabin, I should say, 
Uh, I remember it all being kind of gray. Um, the walls and uh, everything was metal. There were no windows. Um, and it was like uh, bunk beds, I think. You know, one above and one below and, um, with a ladder. And that's what I recall. And, and a cabinet with a drawer, a few drawers. Um, that's what I recall. Yeah. Do you remember the um, the kind of promenade decks where you could take take the air and enjoy yes. enjoy the, the whole business of going across the Atlantic? Yes, because that's where we we went after the accident, after the collision, mm. and uh, actually, I had. Uh, gone to bed early that night. I wanted to get up early the following morning because we were due to arrive in New York City and I wanted to see, to witness the arrival and see the Statue of Liberty as I imagined my grandparents had seen when they emigrated uh, from Europe and arrived uh, in the New World. <laughs> yeah. When was that? What what year was that? Uh, your, when your they came. Emigrating. Yeah. Do you have any idea uh, on that? Well, yeah, it would have been in the late 1890s. Yeah. And where did they come from? What was their, Which country did they come from? Uh, well, they came from, I'm not sure where they departed from, but they had been in Russia in a small town or shtetl, which is now a major city in Poland uh, called Bialystok. Mm -hmm. And uh, did they settle in New York or did they, did they move, move elsewhere? Uh, no, they settled in New York. My dad was born in Manhattan in 1903. And did they, uh, where, where did they, where did they have you? Where did you, you appear in the world in America? Uh, I appeared in uh, the borough of Queens uh, in 1933. Fantastic. So going back to New York was, you know, it, it, it was coming properly coming home from for you. This wasn't just just a port that coincidentally was where you were going. It was it was really home. Well, I um, I also till I was 16, I lived in Queens. Uh, I moved to Los Angeles uh, when I was 16 and uh, I moved back to New York. Uh, eight years after that, and then I moved some. Uh, I, I moved to Los Angeles from New York twice: once in 1949 and once in 1989. And I'm still here. Very good. So you were you were you woke yourself up early well, when you were um, in your bunk I, bed. My my first wife said. Um, she had promised with some other young ladies that they would dance with a very shy Italian fellow um, 
So she finally said, come on, get up, you know. Uh, you, you'll get up in time. So to see, you know, the Statue of Liberty. So I threw on uh, some clothes that I had. Um, I think a wash and wear shirt and um, a corduroy jacket. And we went up and um, I was kind of bored. Had a glass of champagne and was heading for uh, aft to where there was a, a card room to see if there was maybe a poker game going on <laughs> or something. And when the uh, the uh, ship hit us, of course I didn't know it was a ship. I had no idea what happened, but just I I didn't. Uh, I was I kind of bounced around on my my feet, um, but I maintained my footing. Um, but people were suddenly. Uh, wondering what had happened, what could, the, and, and people were talking about, you know, there was a popular book out, uh, I think it was called A Night to Remember or something, it was about uh, the Titanic, uh, and it was a book, in fact, I had been reading it, and um, some people were wondering if we'd hit an iceberg. And of course it was July, getting close to New York. And uh, we had no idea for a long time what had happened, what caused the ship to, uh, to you know, to tilt yeah. over so far. We were at a list of, I don't know. So it was misty and dark, where you couldn't, you, you just weren't able to see the other vessel. Or had the, I suppose the other vessel might have just drifted off. And it was also, as it happened, when I ran downstairs to get life preservers, and then I ran way up, and I found my, my wife, uh, I guess, I don't know which side of the ship it was on, the port or the starboard, but it was elevated. It was the high side, but we couldn't see through uh, the structures above, you know, on, we couldn't see the low side. We were yeah. hanging on to the rail to keep from sliding and uh, we were on the high side for a number of hours. And did they manage to start launching lifeboats then? Don't know what, when that happened. Uh, it was, you know, we only heard one, uh, one word. Uh, for all the lights went off for a while, and some of them came back on. Um, and one word from, we assumed from the captain, um, which in a very, might not have been the captain himself, but it was in a very shaky voice saying, Kalme. 
keep calm. Yeah. And that was it. That was the only communication that we had. And we were standing with a number of young people. There were some Americans and uh, uh, some Middle Eastern fellows. And we just uh, told each other lies, like, oh, it's going to straighten out. You know, there's no problem. The Andrea Doria was uh, advertised as unsinkable. Mm. And uh, we were kind of clinging to that thought. Uh, But eventually, we um, decided to go a little further aft, and that was where a swimming pool was. It hadn't been emptied, um, and so the deck was very wet, and people started to go to the low side, and they slipped. People were, you know, breaking bones and eyeglasses and such, sliding down. Eventually, we uh, got down to the low side, and there we um, were able to see that there was this other ship, the Stockholm. Um, and we saw some boats, lifeboats, uh, motorized, moving in the water. But we got down a Jacob's Ladder into a broken lifeboat, which was actually an Andrea Doria lifeboat, which must have been cut loose because on the high side they couldn't be lowered because they would hit the side of the ship. And on the low side, uh, many of them were broken in the collision, apparently, and this one fell into the water and we were getting into it through down a Jacob's ladder. And um, when we looked straight ahead, there was this ship and it was all lit up. And it said, uh, um, Ile de France. And of course, we wanted to go there. But uh, the rudder on our lifeboat was broken. It was not a motorized boat. It was operated by hand. You had pipes that came uh, into the boat and you pushed, and that was to propel the boat. Everybody pushing. Um, a sort of hand cranked, hand cranked boat. More or less, yeah. I think what we pushed operated something beneath the boat that propelled it. And, but we couldn't steer it. And we, were, uh, we went out uh, and eventually we almost collided in our little lifeboat, almost collided with a ship called the Cape Ann, a freighter. And 
fortunately uh, got out onto a little platform and a series of stairs into up into this freighter at which point we felt safe and mm. They wrap you up in blankets and take you back to New York. Uh, well, they and they fed us. You know, it, it was uh, twelve hours from when we left, because it was still standing by for a while um, to pick up perhaps stranded passengers and. Uh, then we headed for New York, and uh, I was supposed to meet my my partner, my writing partner at that time, um, Jerry Lieber. We had planned to meet in New York, and uh, I sent. Uh, I had to pay cash. I remember that, and I had a few lira in my pocket and uh, paid to send a wire to um, Atlantic Records, which is a company that we were <clears throat> producing records for in New York. And then obviously informed Jerry that I was alive and coming in. <clears throat> he is, was watching on the television from a hotel room in New York. So the, the wild thing is that when I finally came in and the uh, freighter docked in New York, I came down the gangplank and Jerry was there and he ran up to me and he said, Mike, we had a smash hit. Oh. <laughs> That's the first thing he said to me. And, um, you know, we hadn't seen each other in uh, over three months, and and uh, I said, you're kidding. He said, no, hound dog. And I said, Big Mama Thornton? Because she had had a big rhythm and blues hit uh, like um, three years before. Yeah. And uh, he said, no, some white kid named uh, Elvis Presley. And so, I, uh, it was, you know, I, I, had a, I had a feeling on the ship, which I said to myself, this is it. I thought I was going to die, uh, literally. Um, and I went from feeling like I was going to die to learning I had a big number one hit uh, in America. Wow. What a, what an extraordinary <laughs> it was quite wave a, of emotion. What was quite a day. <laughs> quite a day. Yeah, the, the the best understatement. Did you feel a, a real need to talk about your experiences on the Andrea Doria afterwards, or did you just did the world just kind of you know pick you up and whiz you along because of the success of Hound Dog? Well, some of each. I don't know that I wanted to dwell on it. Um, I mean, immediately after, of course, um, you know, we, we had some insurance or the boat had some insurance 
and uh, we got a little bit of money and I was in New York and so we we stayed in actually stayed in New York and and wrote a couple of songs that recorded while we were in New York for the balance of that year which was 1956 and uh, the accident was July 25th, I believe, yeah. Hmm. And uh, I didn't get home to Los Angeles till like uh, the 1st or 2nd of January. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot to do about this, this terrible tragedy because there were so many people lost. Um, not as bad as it could have been, but but still, it was over fifty people that were lost. Yeah. Were there any um, uh, uh, journalists or anyone kind of trying to seek out the story? Were you contacted for your own own version of events? I don't believe I was contacted uh, by journalists. No, I'm sure some people were. And there were some uh, famous people aboard who, uh, actors or actresses. Um, And so there were a lot of stories about it. Um, It's a, a, a really extraordinary story. Did you think twice about going back on board a ship? Was there a time you you actually went back on another transatlantic vessel? There was. Um, uh, About ten years later, I uh, actually my first wife and I separated, we divorced, and then I met uh, my second wife, Corky Hale, a wonderful musician. And uh, yeah, we we took a ship from, we were living in New York by that time, again, and we took uh, the QE2, I believe, yeah. And we went we went to uh, Southampton uh, from New York and uh, spent some time in in London and then <clears throat> took a little uh, boat across the channel and actually we we spent a month or so in Europe and uh, came back on uh, the Leonardo da Vinci, <laughs> another Italian line boat from, again, from uh, Napoli to New York. And, um, yeah, we actually, we never left the surface on that trip. It was all by ship and train and car and so on. Um, yeah, no, I uh, actually, the first time I got on a ship, actually that was not it. 
Horky um, and I uh, took a sailboat in the Grenadines uh, and ended up in the island of Grenada. And we decided we would take the first ship that left Grenada wherever it went. Hmm. And we saw, you know, we saw some Russian ships with hammer and sickle insignia and so on and so forth. But when we got down to the, uh, uh, to the docks, because we could see that from where we were in our little beachside uh, cabin uh, of a hotel, uh, we got down to the dock with a small suitcase that we had taken because we were on a sailboat and all we needed were bathing suits and shorts. And um, there was a Greek ship. Uh, and um, the uh, I think it was a... a Somebody who was on the ship, I don't know uh, in what capacity exactly, probably a, a entertainment supervisor or what have you, um, was coming off the ship. And I said, do you think, do they have a, a, a room on the ship? He said, well, let me check. He said, you could be on for one night. Uh, <laughs> I said, where are you going? He said, well, we're going to Martinique. I said, okay. So I gave him $40, and we got a cabin and first-class meal and a bottle of wine included. And we got off the next day. But that night, I, I, the, we had opened a porthole, which we were not supposed to do because it was very hot. And the spray came in, and I dreamt that, uh, that it was filling up with water. Mm. And um, fortunately, I woke up, and I was okay. And I've never been concerned about ships. I loved the idea of going on chips yeah i like the story of you getting a first class cabin and a bottle of wine it feels like it was all evened out after your horrible experience on the andrew doria you got a great <laughs> one <in the> <laughs> it was nice yes wonderful mike uh, let's leave it there thank you so much for your time and for sharing that story with us today oh you're very welcome nice to speak to you and uh it's nice to see you, as a matter of fact, because I, I understand you can't see me, but that's all right. No, I can't much. see you. I, I'm imagining Nothing what you look like. Nothing much to look at. <laughs>
Thank you all so much for listening. Now, don't let this be the last thing you do to interact with the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Please go back to our brilliant back catalogue and check out a huge range of maritime history. Yes, we have our mini-series on maritime disasters, but also so much more. Please also don't just listen to the podcast, but do check out our YouTube page, where we've got tons of fabulous video material, including the use of artificial intelligence that brings ship's figureheads to life, the animation of battle plans, the use of 3D modelling to show you around magnificent ships of the past, and much more. You really will not believe your eyes, I promise. Please also note that the podcast comes from both the Lloyd's Register Foundation and the Society for Nautical Research. So do please check out everything that both institutions are doing. The Lloyd's Register Archive and Education Centre can be found at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk and the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join up and become part of a society that has been helping to preserve maritime history for well over a century. There really is nothing better you could do with your time.